Father, thank you for the blessings of this camp meeting. And as we're in the day of preparation, I pray, Lord, continue to prepare our hearts in this meeting. We come to you humbly. We come to you gratefully. I pray bless our speaker whom you've worked through this week. And I pray give him strength and understanding, clarity of thought, and communication. Now thank you that we can gather here, and we gather in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. You know, one of the blessings of our camp meeting is the dynamic of technology and that you don't even have to be here to get the blessing. Now, being here is the best way. And uh, we were talking in the back before we came out. The only bad thing about doing it here is that you can have a good group. And since this auditorium holds over 2,000 people, you don't sense what a nice group you have because we're so spread out. But we're not going to ask you to move today. Um, and others will join us as we come in, but it's been a good week to be here. And uh, the radio station, many of you are aware of that, but if you're in your camper, if you're in your uh, trailer, and you're not able to be at a meeting, be sure and tune in. And uh, Elder Gallimore may say a word or two about how others have been doing that, but through the streaming and the other uh, Facebook page and media outlets, we've had quite a good response to our camp meeting. This evening, if you're a part of the Adventist Community Services leadership locally and also those that are in state leadership, they are providing a meal over in the lower level of the Cedar Lake Church at 5.30 this evening. So if you're an Adventist Community Services local leader in your church or in some kind of administrative post on a state level, we hope that you'll join the conference leadership at 5.30 tonight at the Cedar Lake Church for a meal. We are asking as a result of the, I won't say continued because that has the wrong sense about it. We really trust that the rain won't be like it was last weekend, but it is very wet in H and HP loops. So if you're out there, we're hoping that you will uh, use your feet for travel, not your car, and that we will minimize the negative impact to our grounds by driving on the soggy roads. So we hope that uh, as we come to the afternoon that we can as a uh, statewide congregation, put our lives in order, prepare for the Sabbath, prepare our hearts, prepare our places, talk to our children, and come to this evening ready to receive a rich blessing. It's been a blessing to be together this week, and I know uh, Elder Gallimore, our conference president, would like to say a word here before Dr. Walling takes up his last presentation. Thank you, Pastor Kelly, and I am happy to see each of you here I can tell you that um, the issues that uh, Elder Walleen, Dr. Walleen has been dealing with are issues that are facing not only the Seventh-day Adventist Church, but the whole Christian world at large. Your methods of Bible study, the Bible is always over the Bible. It's always, you look down through history, every time it's over the Bible. So your methods of Bible study become very, very important to understand those. and. Uh, I, uh, I was just mentioning them backstage that oh, a few days ago, we had already had 88,000 people interact on Facebook significantly with our camp meeting. We had already had 25,000 people view a seminar or a uh, sermon from here. So, uh, and it's from a lot of places in the world. It's not just Michigan that that's happening. So a lot of people are watching what's happening here and listening. And uh, so 
um, we praise, praise the Lord for that. Um, Dr. Walleen's one of my favorite people to sit at his feet. I like to listen to him. He thinks things through. He's very quietly thoughtful, quietly thoughtful and careful, but he's thought it through. And um, the fact that um, he's helping us here at this camp meeting has been very, very much appreciated by me. And I want to thank him for coming and for putting this series on. And it's our prayer that God will continue to bless his work. I apologize to him. This is one of the ones I wanted to get to, but uh, I haven't been able to get to them because it just seems like this 11 o'clock hour has just been the pressure cooker for us. And uh, so I haven't been able to. I really would have enjoyed listening to all the question and answer time. How many of you enjoyed the question and answer time? That's, uh, that's uh, very good because then people can share and then you get pick up insights that you don't normally pick up uh, otherwise. So. Uh, Dr. Walleen, Pastor Walleen, Elder Walleen, we can call you all of those things. Uh, thank you so much for being here and for sharing. May God continue to bless you and bless far beyond this camp meeting as all of this has been recorded and we'll be putting online too. Thank you very much, Elder Gallimore. It has been a real blessing to be here. Amen? And what a wonderful group um, we have had this week. It seems like it has come and gone very quickly. Um, but the Sabbath is coming, and so there are more blessings in store. I just want to give, uh, at the very beginning, a brief summary of what we covered yesterday. Um, you know, the plain reading of the Bible is the most important um, aspect of um, our study because it allows Scripture to interpret Scripture. We don't look to commentaries or theologians. We look to the Bible itself to understand what it means. And if we do that with a prayerful heart and uh, ask for the Holy Spirit to guide us, God has promised that He will. So let's look just briefly at some of the three of the difficult texts we looked at yesterday. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 to 3, the topic is headship. Believers are to follow Christ as their model head, especially church leaders, uh, we found in verse 1 of that chapter. And that head, we went through quite a number of texts throughout Scripture, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, to show that head clearly means responsibility and authority, and it's even connected with our prophetic understanding of Daniel and Revelation. And the authority of every man is Christ, then, is how we could understand verse 3. The authority or head of every man is Christ. The authority of the woman is the man, and the authority of Christ is God. Coming to the second difficult text, um, verses 5 to 15 of that chapter, where it talks about head coverings. It may have been a surprise to some of you, but the head covering is not a veil. And the veil, the word for veil, is not used anywhere in 1 Corinthians 11. In fact, Paul says that the covering for the woman in verse 15 is her long hair, that that's her covering, her glory. And he alludes actually with the word covering, katakalupto, um, to Isaiah 6 verse 2, where the seraphim uh, cover their face, cover their feet with their wings because they're in God's presence. That's the example that Paul is pointing to for women and the Isaiah for men. Of course, this is the teaching based on creation. The point is not the length of hair. Paul affirms that the 
creation principle of two distinct genders. Two distinct genders, male and female. We looked also at Deuteronomy 22, verse 5 in that regard. The third difficult text we looked at yesterday, 1 Corinthians 14, 34 and 35, women keeping silent in church. Um, A lot of people don't realize that Paul addresses three groups and tells them to keep silent, not just one, both men and women. All three are told to stop talking and be silent. And the women are told to be silent because they kept asking questions and they were to then ask their husbands at home. So, uh, with that uh, brief review, let's move on to the topic for today, powerful women or women of power. You know, there's been a lot of interest for some reason in women in the Bible in the last few years. I don't know if you've noticed it, but several Adventist scholars have pointed to various women in Scripture as providing a biblical basis for ordaining women to the gospel ministry. By now, the way a gender lens is used to exaggerate some biblical evidence toward a pro-women's ordination position and minimize other passages should be very familiar. So we'll mention only briefly how the gender lens is used in connection with the women we will consider in chronological order. Now, we'll look at uh, after the the gender lens, then we'll look at what the plain reading or plain meaning of Scripture says about each of these women. But first, let's look at Jochebed. According to gender lens, Jochebed is completely ignored, even though she was arguably one of the most influential women of the Bible. Why might that be? Why would she be so influential? Come on, it's not that hard. She was the mother of... Moses. I want to underscore that word mother. She was the mother of Moses and the preserver of Moses together with Miriam and the educator of Moses. What does the Bible say about Jochebed? Think about it. It's no doubt um, that she is referred to um, in scripture because of being the mother of Moses. This is really her primary uh, distinction. But what a distinction it is. She's referred to twice by name in Scripture. And both times she's recorded as being the mother of Moses. One of those also, uh, the second one, refers to her as the mother of Miriam as well as Moses and Aaron. It's no doubt that Moses clearly remembered who he was as an Israelite and as Hebrews tells us, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, identifying himself with God's people, even willing to suffer with them. Why? Because of the education he received through Jochebed. He decided to place his future in God's hands. Miriam... Moses' sister was a prophetess and, according to the gender lens, one of the top three leaders in Israel. Now let's look at what the Bible has to say about Miriam. It's interesting, by the way, that those who use a gender lens don't refer to 
Miriam's saving Moses, nor her boldness in asking Pharaoh's daughter to find someone to nurse and bring up the baby. But she did. Exodus 15, verses 20 and 21, call her a prophetess. Exodus 15, 20 and 21, and it records her song. It says, Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels, with dances, and Miriam answered them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Song of Miriam, if you look at it, is actually based very much on the Song of Moses that precedes it. Her song is in verse 21. The Song of Moses is in chapter 15, verses 1 to 19, or 1 to 18. And so um, she repeats and underscores the message contained in the Song of Moses. This is very similar to what other Bible prophets do in pointing back to God's previous revelation. As Paul says, and we saw yesterday in 1 Corinthians 14, 32, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. So in Micah 6, verse 4, it says that God is speaking, I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Okay, three individuals sent by God to Israel. Miriam is indeed remembered as one of the leaders of Israel, which we've already seen in terms of her role as a prophetess. She's even said to be sent by God, which, by the way, is the same word that's used for Moses and Aaron. Um, They are sent in the same way, but it doesn't mean they're sent to fulfill the same work. Moses was sent by God to deliver Israel. Clearly, Miriam was sent by God to fulfill a different work. And there is an order to these names in Micah 6, verse 4. Moses is mentioned first because he was sent by God as the ruler and deliverer of Israel. And Stephen makes reference to this in Acts 7, verse 35. God set up one ruler, not three. Moses was clearly the one in charge of leading Israel. And when Miriam and Aaron challenged his authority, it was tantamount to challenging God's authority. Aaron, in this verse of Micah 6, verse 4, is mentioned second because as high priest, he was second in command. Well, how did that work out? When Moses went up to the mountain and Aaron was in charge, how did that work out? Not very well. Now, as high priest, what was his role to do? He was to be an example and a leader and a spiritual teacher in Israel. The last thing we would expect of someone like Aaron as high priest is to lead the people into apostasy. But that's what he did. He was supposed to educate the people so they would understand God's will. And the same is true of pastors and Bible teachers today. That is their role. Miriam is mentioned third here for a reason. The role of prophets was to be supportive of godly leaders. And when leaders were not following God's will, the prophets were to correct them, sometimes very directly, very 
firmly and forcefully, but prophets were not to try to undermine or overthrow the leadership that God had established. This is actually quite clear from Numbers 12. And we know uh, one verse, at least, in Numbers 12 very well. Numbers 12, verse 6. Um, you'll recognize it as soon as I quote it. Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Okay, we know that, right? But what is the context? Notice verses 1 to 3, what it says. Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman, woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. So they said, has the Lord, notice this, verse 2, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very humble more than all the men on the face of the earth. This is important to explain because Moses wasn't actually, it doesn't seem he was prepared to do anything about it. God stepped in, in fact, because it says in verse 4, suddenly the Lord said to Moses, Aaron and Miriam, come out, you three, to the tabernacle of meeting. And then he begins asking questions. There's an investigative judgment similar to the one that we looked at in the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. Verses 9 to 12 describe God's wrath aroused against this rebellion. And there were three visible results. And it's important for the people to recognize this for what it was. That's why these results were visible results. That they were... um, standing against God's appointed leader. So the first result, God left the tabernacle. That shows to all Israel that God was displeased with Aaron, the high priest. His presence departed, completely left. And it points out that Aaron was wrong. Secondly, Miriam, what happened to her? She became leprous. Again, another visible sign of God's displeasure. As with Aaron, the punishment was visible so all Israel would know that Miriam was wrong and Moses was right. That Moses was God's appointed leader. But Miriam was not immediately restored. It was important that the consequences would be more than simply a slap on the hand. They had to be real consequences, severe enough to serve as a lasting lesson for Israel, something they would never forget, something they would look back on and recognize that God and his, his leadership should not be challenged or questioned. The last time Miriam is mentioned in the Bible is in Deuteronomy 24, verse 9. It says simply, Remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way when you came out of Egypt. Remember. And at this stage of Israel's history, they are on the borders of the promised land. It is, God is preparing this new generation to enter 
under Joshua and Caleb's inspired spiritual leadership and example. Remember, remember what the Lord your God did on the way when you came out of Egypt. It kind of reminds me of what Jesus said. In, yes, speaking of the future and looking forward to the second coming of Jesus, remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. Miriam is never mentioned again. The fact is she died in Kadesh and was buried there, according to Numbers 20, verse 1. Neither she nor Aaron, not even Moses, would enter Canaan. Verse 15, it says that in, uh, in Numbers 12, Miriam was shut out of the camp seven days, and the people did not journey till Miriam was brought in again. So Israel's journey to Canaan was delayed. Delayed. Deuteronomy 2, verses 1 and 2, says, God says, You have compassed this mountain long enough. And of course, they had wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. It's maybe important for us to ask ourselves the question, how long? How much longer will we compass this mountain and not move on? Well, let's move on to Deborah. The gender lens, according to that, uh, those who use a gender lens in reading about her life, she had a combination of leadership roles that no man in Scripture does. As a prophetess, she was a religious leader. As a judge, she was a civil leader. And in leading the armies of Israel to battle, we could even call her a general. So, what does the Bible say about Deborah? Let's look at Judges chapter 4. Judges chapter 4. Deborah is described in verses 4 and 5 in three ways. Now, Deborah, a prophetess, number one, the wife of Lapidoth, number two, was judging Israel, number three. But the text at the same time indicates in several ways that her role in judging Israel was highly unusual and, in fact, exceptional. An exceptional situation. She is never called a judge. She calls herself in the Song of, of Deborah, chapter 5, verse 7, a mother in Israel. And the, num the normal formula for a judge, ex-judged Israel Y years, is never used of her. Unlike other judges, Deborah fulfilled this role only for a limited period of time. And the text indicates two ways that that happened. It refers to her judging, and it uses a participial form. It doesn't use the normal verb form that we find with all the other judges. And it says, at that time, at that time, suggesting that it was only a temporary role that arose because of exceptional circumstances. Now, the text also emphasizes the exceptional nature of her work by indicating in five different ways, before mentioning her judging, that she was female. It says, now Deborah, this is verse 4, uh, Judges 4, now Deborah, so it's a feminine proper, uh, 
proper noun, and then a prophetess, which uses the female form of the noun for prophet, the wife of Laphidote, and it then says she with a pronoun in Hebrew, she. So why is it so specific? Because this was highly unusual, of course. Not only that, but there are other exceptional things about her judging. Rather than sitting in the gate as judges and elders did, Deborah sat under a palm tree. Notice uh, this comment by Ellen White in Signs of the Times, June 16, 1881. In the absence of the usual magistrates, the people had sought to her for counsel and justice. Now, the Bible confirms that actually God's intended leader at the time was Barak. God calls Barak to act as Israel's deliverer through Deborah's prophetic message in Judges chapter 4. Barak, though, unfortunately, refuses to lead Israel into battle unless Deborah would go with him. And thus, Ellen White says, support his efforts by her influence and counsel. He wanted her presence. Deborah allows herself to go, agrees to go, but she prophesies that she will go and the victory will be gained, but it will not lead, she says, to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Interestingly, it wasn't Deborah, but Jael. And uh, that's quite an interesting story if you remember it. The song of Deborah sung by both Deborah and Barak, alludes to both of them as leaders who took the lead in Israel. So it wasn't just Deborah, really Barak was the one uh, that was supposed to be in charge. And that's perhaps why in Hebrews 11 verse 32, it's only Barak who is mentioned, not Deborah, in recalling Israel's deliverance at that time. So, Basically, Deborah was obedient to the prophetic role that God called her to do in an exceptional situation. Her work was temporarily expanded to encompass some of the functions that a judge would do, but as Ellen G. White reminds us, it was Barak who had been designated by the Lord as the one chosen to deliver Israel. Now, this single biblical example of a notable leadership by a woman during the time of the judges, when we should remember there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes, does that, you think, provide a secure model for leadership in God's church today? It does not. It does not. It does not provide a sound basis for establishing a principle of female headship in contradiction to the rest of Scripture. And we might just recall in passing that there were actually two female leaders of Israel during the time of the kings, examples of women queens who usurped power. Jezebel, number one, what did she do? She led the northern king of Israel into apostasy and endeavored to exterminate God's prophets, including Elijah. Amazing. Yeah, after the Mount Carmel experience, she was determined. Number two, Athaliah. 
after coming to the throne of Judah, she consolidated her power by killing all the male heirs, except, fortunately, young Joash, who was hidden away for six years by the wife of the high priest. Not very good models. Didn't work out very well for Israel. Let's turn to the New Testament. Mary Magdalene. The gender lens would say Mary Magdalene along with the other women were sent and commissioned by Jesus to the apostles to proclaim his resurrection from the dead. The fact that the apostles did not believe them shows that simply they were hopelessly biased against women and uh, steeped in patriarchalism. What does the Bible say? Well, in the New Testament, female believers were called to significant roles, but they were supportive roles. They supported the ministry of Jesus, including providing financial means for the furtherance of his ministry. We read about that in Luke chapter 8, verses 2 and 3. And one of these was Mary Magdalene. According to The Desire of Ages, page 68, we read, The plan of redemption has invested humanity with great possibilities. And in Mary, these possibilities were to be realized. Through his grace, she became partaker of the divine nature. The one who had fallen, whose mind had been a habitation of demons, was brought very near to the Savior in fellowship and ministry. It was Mary who sat at his feet and learned of him. It was Mary who poured upon his head the precious anointing oil and bathed his feet with her tears. Mary stood beside the cross and followed him to the sepulcher. Mary was first at the tomb after his resurrection. It was Mary who first proclaimed a risen Savior. So very important roles. Together with other women, Mary was told by angels that Jesus had risen. But when they told the disciples, it seemed their words were like idle tales, Luke 24 says, and they did not believe them. Now, in that time period, roles of disciple, witness, proclaimer of the resurrection would undoubtedly have been out of step and even offensive to many Jews. But Jesus encouraged Mary and other women to fulfill these important tasks. Despite all we learn about Mary Magdalene, though, there is no evidence that she ever fulfilled any role after Christ's ascension to heaven in any official role in the church. I'm sure she, she did what she could to proclaim the message individually, but she never had any official role. She may have been among the women praying in the upper room leading up to the day of Pentecost, but she's not mentioned specifically, nor is there any record of any women preaching in Acts, though some certainly prophesied. Turning to Phoebe, she was a deaconess, according to the gender lens, in the church at Cancrea. And her leadership of the church there was affirmed by Paul. Well, what does the Bible say? In Romans 16, Paul gives greetings to a long list of believers, including many women. One of these is Phoebe, and she's called a diaconess of the church at Cancrea. You may remember that that word in Greek means deacon or deaconess sometimes. And uh, 
So two versions actually translated that way uh, as deaconess, Phillips and RSV, and three as deacon. Two versions even go so far as to translate it leader or minister. But these are two of the four versions that translate 1 Timothy 3 verse 2 in a gender neutral way so as not to exclude women from the position of overseer or elder. So it's clearly biased translation. But 13 English versions at least, there are probably more, but I, I stopped counting. Translate the word here as servant. And of course some of those, New American Standard Bible, the uh, New English translation, NIV, the older version, New King James Version, the World English Bible, very, very important translations. Um, retain that. Others um, call her a helper. It's used 29 times in the New Testament, this word diaconus, and always, almost always, it's translated servant because it's the most general and preferred designation for all church workers, regardless of who they were. Jesus, he said, whoever desires to be great among you, let him be your servant, diaconus. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, diakoneo, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for me. So Jesus is the model servant. It's really a very high title, even though it's connected, not connected um, most of the time with an office in the church. It's used uh, twice more in Romans. Romans 13, verse 4, diakonos. Uh, the ruler, the government minister, is God's servant for good, Paul says. Romans 15, 8, now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers. It's only used three times in a technical sense of deacon. There's no evidence that it was ever used um, for the highest office or represented um, a work that could be done apart from elders or overseers in the church. They always, deacons always worked under the authority of an elder or an overseer. They never worked independently. In the last part of Romans 16, 1, Paul adds that Phoebe has been a helper of many and of myself also. Some have suggested that this word helper, uh, prostatus, might uh, mean leader here. And in fact, that Phoebe is the leader of a congregation on her own. But that doesn't fit the context of the verse. And it's difficult to imagine Paul considering Phoebe as his leader. Because he says, a leader of me also, if that's the way we would translate it, rather than, sir, rather than uh, worker or helper. Something he refused to concede even to the other apostles, including James, Peter, and John. Just doesn't make sense to translate it leader. It, it means helper, one who provided assistance. And the women in 1 Timothy 3.11 seem to have done the work of, of deaconesses since they have uh, assisted deacons in their church duties without being given an official title. So turning to, uh, that's kind of review of 1 Timothy 3. Turning to Junia now, the gender lens, you might recall, if some of you, uh, this recent issue of Ministry Magazine Junia, and I'm not quoting from this issue, but uh, this summarizes the idea. Junia was the first female apostle serving with her husband Andronicus and notable among the apostles. 
according to this gender lens. Since this is the highest church office mentioned in the New Testament, there's no reason why women cannot be ordained as ministers. Well, what does the Bible say? It is not clear, first of all, that the Greek name Unias is female. In fact, 18 English versions that I checked translate it as a male name, Junius. And you can see the list there. They include the Message Bible, New American Standard, both uh, the original and revised, the original NIV, RSV, uh, the World English Bible, and, and many, many others. So um, it's interesting that she may not, if we could say she, it could be he actually, not she. And in fact, there are three other names in Romans 16 that use the ending A-S um, in Greek, Alpha Sigma. And these three names, you see them there, Patrobas, Hermas, and Olympus, are all clearly men. So there's no strong reason to consider Junius as an exception as a woman. In fact, this person is, Paul calls this person his fellow prisoner. And all others mentioned as Paul's fellow prisoners or visiting him in prison were male. The word apostle is normally reserved for those sent out by Jesus and the church for the ministry of the word and raising up churches. So the translation outstanding among the apostles that the new NIV, the 2011 edition, has is biased. The Greek text does not suggest that Andriacus and Junius are to be numbered with the apostles. It could just as easily be translated esteemed by the apostles or, as the English Standard Version has it, well known to the apostles. It is unlikely that Paul referred to a woman named Junia here. But even if he did, she is not said to be among the apostles. So in conclusion, women played a key role throughout the Bible. They were not so much powerful women, but they were women of power. They were women who were controlled and guided by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is ready and willing to empower all of us who are willing to do God's will. And we're told, of course, that the final work will be an amazing one. Revelation 18 verses 1 to 4 describes it, of the light that is to lighten the whole earth with its glory, a revelation of God's character of love. As we enter those final days, let us look to God, to his word, and remember that his word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. May God bless us in that. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.